Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. But before we hear the reading of God's Word, let us pray and ask for His grace that we might receive it with love and faith and meekness. Pray with me. Father God, we come before You this morning humbly asking that You would open our hearts and our ears to hear Your voice and to receive it. That we might believe it. That we might rest in it. And that we might be transformed by it. That together we might bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of Your glory. Father God, only You can do these things. And so we ask You to do them by Your Spirit according to Your mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. This is the very Word of God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The Word of the Lord. There are some difficult passages in Hebrews, passages that are, are difficult to preach, passages that I wasn't really looking forward to when we began our trek through this book. But this passage is difficult in a different way because it is a command for you to submit to your leaders, and I am one of them. And so it's hard for me to, to stand here and, and to charge you that you need to submit to me. But to hear this properly, we have to understand what it is that the author is aiming at. What is his goal? What is his purpose? Why does he give this charge to the Hebrews and, and through them to us? The command itself is, is clear enough. Obey your leaders and submit to them. But we know that it is a command that sinners naturally resist. The very essence of sin is self-determination. The very essence of, of a sinful nature is that desire and demand to, to do what is right in your own eyes. The, the, the feeling of leaning on your own understanding, of, of making your own decisions, of, of doing what you want to do. This is the very essence of, of sin. Sinners don't like to submit. And this natural or sinful resistance to submission is only exacerbated by our modern Western culture, a, a culture that is constantly uh, highlighting the, the value and the virtue of, of being true to yourself and following your own desires. Self-determination is one of our greatest idols. And so we need to understand why the author is giving this command. We, we need to see what his goal is so that our hearts might be softened to receive his charge. And I think that we begin to discover his reason when we read this in context, when we notice the connection between this verse and the first part of the chapter. 
You will remember that uh, chapter 13 opened with a series of sort of bullet point exhortations, a, a, a bullet point of, of list of, of what it looks like to run the race of faith. And in chapter 12, he had exhorted us in, in light of the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us to run with endurance the race that had been marked out for us. And here in, in chapter 13, he, he gives us a, a snapshot of what that looks like. And he didn't avoid any of the hard topics. He, he begins with brotherly love. Running the race of faith looks like loving your brothers and sisters in Christ well. Loving them because they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. But not only does it look like loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, it, it looks like loving strangers. And having a particular concern for those who are imprisoned and, and mistreated. It looks like submitting your, your sex life and your finances to the Lordship of Christ. These are the, the bullet point pictures that he has given us of what it looks like to run well the race of faith. And you remember that he reminds us that these good works are not good works we do in order to earn God's salvation. They are not additions or, or alternatives to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice of himself, but rather this is the expression of the new relationship with God that we have in Christ. We do good works not to be saved, but because we have been saved. Think of Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 2. You are his workmanship. You who have been saved by grace, you have been created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he has prepared in advance that you should walk in them. These good works are the sacrifices of a faith, what, what Paul calls the obedience of faith, the, the fruits of righteousness that his word brings forth in our lives. And now to that list of, of bullet points, he adds this exhortation, obey your leaders. And so the question naturally arises, is this just one more thing that we are supposed to do? Is this just one more good work? I want to suggest to you that it's something more than that. Obeying your leaders is not just one more thing that you are supposed to do, but rather the author is charging the Hebrews, and as I said, through them charging us to obey their leaders so that they might be equipped to live the kind of life that he has been describing. This isn't just one more thing on the list. This is the way. This is the means of God's gracious provision that we are going to be equipped to do the life that he has been calling us too. Obeying your leaders is, is not just one more thing you're supposed to do. It is the way that you will be equipped to do all the things that you have been called to do. I think we see this in the word leader itself. The word that the author uses is a very general term. There are, there are leaders in every area of life. There are uh, business leaders and political leaders and, and military leaders. And the word gets used in all of those different areas of life. It's a general word because a leader is simply one who is further down the road that is ahead of you. There's a course that has been marked out for you. There, there is a race that has been set before you. And the leader is the one who is further down the road. The one who has been at it longer. The one who has made good progress. The one who's, in whose footsteps you are meant to follow. And thus a leader is one who is positioned to help the other runners on the course. 
A leader is one who can show you the ropes. It's one who can demonstrate to you the best practices. It's one who can point out to you the common pitfalls. And we know what it is to, to have and to need such leaders. In my life, whenever I wanted to learn some new skill, I almost always looked to a leader, someone who had been doing it longer, someone who had been doing it better. When I wanted to learn to play golf, I looked for someone who could teach me how to play, because, and I knew they could teach me because they were doing it. They were doing it the way I wanted to do it. When I wanted to learn how to play chess, I went to someone who played far better than me. When I, when I wanted to learn to play anything, that's the way that it works. You go to a leader. And it's not just in the area of sports. When I graduated from seminary, I wanted to go and, and sit under a pastor who could show me what it meant to be the pastor of a church. I wasn't that concerned about the, the job description. I wanted someone to mentor me. I wanted someone to lead me. I, I went to the church I went to because my dad knew the pastor there and said, he is a man you want to learn from. As Christians, we all need such leaders. We need those who are further down the road. We need them to, to show us the way. We need them to show us what it looks like to, to run well, how to navigate the, 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 the difficulties that we will inevitably face in our lives. And that is why the author is commanding the Hebrews to obey and submit to their leaders because they are the ones that are running the race. And they are the ones who are further down the road. And they are the ones who can help you to run well. This is why we obey. The command is for our good, that we would submit to those who can show us the way to run well the race that has been marked out for us. And that gives us a clue to our second question. Who are these leaders? Who are the leaders to whom we are to submit? As I said, it's a very general word that the, uh, that the author uses. It's not a word that is normally associated with one of the offices in the church. And yet, most commentators recognize that he, he is at least probably talking about those who are the ordained leadership in the church. Although certainly there are other leaders as well. But here he's, he is probably talking about those men who are elders and deacons in the church. Certainly we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that elders and deacons are, are men who are to be leaders. That is, they are men who are to be down the road of the Christian life. When you look at the requirements for leaders in the church, for the ordained leadership of the church, almost all of the requirements are character requirements. They are to be mature Christians. They're not to be new in their faith. They have to have been at it for a while. And they are to be uh, demonstrating the, the fruits of righteousness. They are to have the, the character of Christ more and more growing in their lives. They are to be men who have made progress in the race of faith. And given what he says about their responsibility to to look after the souls of those who have been entrusted to them, to, to keep watch over their souls. This is exactly the job description of the elder. We know this from 1 Peter chapter 5, when, when Peter identifies himself as an elder in the church. Yes, he was an apostle, but he was also a felder elder. And he charged the elders in the church to, to look carefully after those who had been entrusted to their care. And so it seems that the author here has the ordained leaders in mind. Again, it's not, those are not the only leaders in the church, but these are the leaders that he has in 
mind. He, he wants them to know that there have been men given to the church by God as gifts, Paul tells us in Ephesians. Given to the church as gifts to, to lead the church towards maturity in Christ. This is the task of leaders. They've been given to the church for this very purpose. They've been gifted by the Holy Spirit for this very purpose. And if the church is to grow up towards maturity in Him, then it is vital that we follow them, that we obey and submit to them. But I want us to, to think about that, that phrase just a little bit more carefully. What does it mean for them to, to look after their, uh, the souls of those who have been entrusted to them? It's, it's, it's the task that is uh, described here. But what does it mean? Why does he, why does he refer to the, the soul? Just last week, we were talking about the fact that the hope of the gospel is not merely that our souls will be plucked out of this earth and, and to live a disembodied life in heaven, but that we have a, a physical, tangible hope, a, a hope of a, of a physical life and a new heavens and a new earth. Why then does the author here speak of the soul of the believers? Well, I want to suggest to you that his, his reference to the soul actually highlights that hope of the resurrection that we were talking about. Think about Paul's language in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, he, he acknowledges that this body, this mortal body is wasting away. And he longs to be rid of it, he says. I, I long to be rid of the infirmities of this flesh. But he immediately clarifies, saying, not that I might be free of a body altogether, not that I would be unclothed, but that I might be more fully clothed, that I might have a permanent body. You see, we, as our essential selves, our, our souls will be saved, but we will not live forever in these frail, mortal bodies. We will put these bodies off at death, and we will receive in their place an imperishable, indestructible body. A body untainted by sin. And so he's, his reference here to the soul is not that he doesn't believe in that future resurrection, but he acknowledges that, that when we are saved at the end, we will rid ourselves of these mortal bodies and we will receive new resurrected bodies in Christ. But that happens at the end. That happens on that day. And so the author is saying that, that he wants the elders to look after the Hebrews to make sure that they make it to the end of the race. That's the assignment. That's the goal. Earlier, the, the author himself had, had charged the Hebrews to heed his warnings so that they might not fail to enter into God's peace on that day. And that is the goal of every elder. That the flock that's been entrusted to him might not fail to enter in. That they, that they might not weave off to the left or to the right. But that they might strengthen their knees, as we saw earlier, and make straight their paths. And that they might run the race all the way to the finish. This is the elder's responsibility. This is the elder's goal. This is the task to which they have been entrusted and this is, what, uh, this is why the, the author wants the Hebrews to obey their leaders. He wants them to recognize that these are the men who have been assigned by God himself to lead you to the end of the race. 
And we need to learn to hear the Hebrew, the author's charge with the same ears. As I said, people today, we tend to resist submission of any kind. We, we tend to, to resist being led. We, we want consultants. We want people that we can talk to and bounce off ideas off of. We want sounding boards. But we want the decision to remain with us. We, we want the final say. We want the final authority. It's the way that we think. It's the way that we live. But the author's warning here reminds us that it is dangerous to allow ourselves to have the last word. As contrary to the American spirit as that is, we need to recognize that it is dangerous to allow ourselves to have the last word, especially in our relationship with God. The verse I've already quoted from uh, the early chapters of, of Proverbs reminds us that we are not to lean on our own understandings, but in all our ways we are to acknowledge Him. And He will make straight our paths. We're not to lean on our own understanding. We are not to follow our own wisdom. We are to submit to the Lord as Lord. That means first that we are to receive His Word as it is, as the living Word of God. This is the Word of our King. This is the Word that He has spoken to us. It is non-negotiable. We, we receive it as authoritative we do not sit over it trying to pick out the, the diamonds from the rough, trying to decide what we will believe, what we will submit to. We receive it as the word of our king. We let it reign over us. We do not rule over it. But even having the word of God, we need to recognize that a Christian alone with his Bible is not safe. God did not intend us to be alone with our Bibles. God did not intend us to decide for ourselves what His Word says. God gave the Word to a people. God gave His Word to a community. God gave His Word to a fellowship. And they are together to read and, and to interpret and to understand that word. And in that community, he has established leaders who are particularly gifted to lead the congregation in understanding and applying that word. This is why it is so important for us to be part of a church community. We need to be part of a community that together owns and reads and understands the word. It has been said that every heretic has his verse. Every heretic has that verse that, that he clings to, that, that seems to establish his truth. But the collective church reads and hears his understanding and says, no, you haven't given proper weight to this. You, you've forgotten about this. You need to read it all together. We need to hear the whole counsel of God. We need to hear his entire word. We need to hear it together as of people. We need to know what the whole church has always believed. We need to hear what the whole church has always believed. Not what one charismatic leader thinks it says. 
but what the whole church has always believed. Now, that's a, a nice phrase, but it's a little hard to work out. Because what has the whole church always believed? It's, it's not always clear-cut. Even godly leaders who, who take the authority of God's Word seriously sometimes disagree. We are a Presbyterian church that, that practices covenantal baptism. That is not the majority opinion in Cleveland, Tennessee. It's, it's, it's not even the opinion of all who worship in this body. There are godly men and women who, who sometimes disagree about how best to practice what the Word teaches. And not only is it that the, those who are honestly seeking to understand God's Word sometimes disagree, there are those who are intentionally false, those who, who have decided for their own profit or for their own glory to twist God's Word to say what they want it to say so that they can gather a crowd around them who, who love the way that they tickle their itching ears. And so we have honest disagreements and we have false teachers and, and it makes this idea of listening to the whole church a, a struggle. In fact, in our own heritage, we, we, we think of Martin Luther standing against the councils of the church and, and saying, I cannot go against my conscience. Here I stand. When they charged him and, and, and asked him, do you really think that you alone are right? He was troubled by the question. He, he took an evening to, to think about his, his answer. And yet at the end of the day, he had to stand on the Word of God. And so there will be those times when you have to stand against the majority. But those are rare moments. Our general practice as believers is to read the Word together, to try to understand it together, to be gracious on those matters where we're not, we cannot all agree, but to stand together on the vitals of religion, on the essentials of our faith. We want to know what the whole church has, has always believed. We do not want to read the Bible on our own. One of the things I was taught early in my days of preparing to be a pastor, that if I think a verse says something and I can't find it in any of the commentaries, I better not say it from the pulpit. You don't ever want to stand in the pulpit alone on your own interpretation. And that actually applies not just to those who would preach, but that applies to all of us. We never want to stand alone on our own interpretation of the Word. We want to read the Bible in community. This is the living Word of God, and it's given to the people of God. And together we seek to understand it. Together we seek to submit to it. And it's because this is the Word of God, and it's because our leader's authority is tied to this Word, that the command that we're given, that our responsibility is to obey and submit to our leaders. Now, that's not an absolute command. We know that from Scripture itself. We see in the early chapters of, of Acts that when, that when Peter was compelled no longer to preach in Christ's name, he, he said to his leaders, you must decide whether it is right for me to obey God or men. Leaders do not have absolute authority. We, we do not give them carte blanche to, to, to order whatever they will. 
The authority of, of a leader is rooted in God's word. And thus, like the Bereans who, who heard Paul preach but then examined the scriptures to see if what he said was true, we must be people who listen to our leaders with our word in hand. We, we must test what we are told. We must test the spirits. The scriptures themselves tell us that. Test the spirits, uh, test the, 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 the present teaching of God's word against that which has been said throughout the ages. And notice that it's not a single leader, but it is leaders, plural. As again, I said that not only do the people of God stand together under leaders, but they, they stand together under leaders, plural. We do not submit to a solo leader. We do not submit to, to one person, no matter how charismatic. But rather, we submit to a plurality of leaders who have been given to the church to help us run well the race that has been set before us. It is this this. Pluralism, that is the reason that I, I love and value Presbyterianism so much. I know Presbyterianism, again, is a, is a strange thing in this part of the country, but, but to be Presbyterian means that we believe in the rule of elders plural. <laughs> that we believe that God gives elders plural to His churches. No church should be under the authority of, of one man. But rather, it is the, the collection of elders, plural, who are to lead the church, who are to feed the church, who are to teach the church, to correct the church. This is the responsibility given not to one elder, but to the elders together in the church. And so together, these elders lead the church in the way that they should go. And those elders themselves are under authority. Again, Presbyterianism refers not just to the rule of elders in a particular congregation, but the rule of elders over each congregation. We are part of something called the Tennessee Valley Presbytery. That is a collection of 30 or more churches between Dalton and Knoxville. And I, as an elder, all of your elders here at this church are under the authority of that presbytery. So that if we begin teaching something that is out of accord with Scripture, there is a way to hold us accountable. And that is a good thing. And not only are we subject to the authority of the elders in our presbytery, but we are subject to the elders in the generations previous to us. That's the value of a confession. Again, sometimes people want to argue that we should only have the, the Bible, but we have a confession not as an infallible word of God, but as a man-made teaching, but a summary of, of what the Bible teaches. This is what we understand the Scriptures to teach. And it has been held by generation after generation after generation. And again, it is a plurality, not only geography-wide, but, but generation-wide. That we are held to what the Scriptures Teach, And that is a good thing. That is a, a thing that is for the health of every member of every church. And so we submit to our leaders again that we might run well. We, we allow our leaders to, to help us know what to believe and how to live. To, to answer questions of both faith and practice. Because we were never intended to live the Christian life in isolation. We were never intended to live the Christian life alone. As I said, a Christian alone with his Bible is not safe. We need to be in the community of the church. We need to be under the authority of those leaders that God himself has given 
to build that church up towards maturity in his son. And because those leaders have been given to the church by God, they are accountable to God. We, we see that as well in this text. Notice that these leaders to whom you are to, to submit and to whom you are to obey, they themselves are accountable for the job that they have been given. They will give an account to God for the task that has been entrusted to them. And that ought to give anyone who, who desires to lead pause. Again, Scripture makes it clear that it is good to desire to lead. If you have been gifted by God, you ought to desire to use those gifts in the service of the church. If you have been gifted by God, you ought to want to use those gifts to build up the church towards maturity. And if you have the gifts of an elder or of a deacon, you ought to want to use those gifts in that particular office. It is a noble thing to desire the office. But... You must wait for those gifts to be recognized by the church as a whole. You do not grasp for leadership yourself. And you do not presume to lead alone. But here we allow the congregation as a whole to say, yes, these are the men that God has given to us. These are the, the men that God has, has gifted for this task. And we joyously receive them as our leaders. And it is to be a joyous thing. That's what he says. Again, notice that not only does, does the accountability of, of leaders mean something that leaders should pause, but, but we should all pause when we think that it would be better for us to resist or, or reject our leaders. He says, let them, that is the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It is no, it is no good to you to, to cause your leaders to grown, but you ought to be thankful for their leadership. You ought to receive them with joy. It doesn't mean that you can never question. It doesn't mean that you cannot raise a question, but every parent knows the difference between a question raised honestly and a question raised in rebellion. I am thankful that there are people in this congregation who are willing to question, willing to ask whether this is really the right thing, whether this is the best way forward. And in my experience, it has almost always been done with love and humility. That is a good thing. But you raise questions of your leaders because they are your leaders. You ask them to reconsider knowing that they are the ones ultimately responsible for the decisions that they make. And so if our leaders are to be a blessing, then we must receive their leadership with joy. See, as I said, God has placed us in community so that together we might learn to run well the race that he has set before us. He's given us leaders that we might be equipped to do the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in them. And we must receive those leaders as a gift of God, as the one who can help us as the ones who can help us learn to run well the race. And it's because He has not left us to figure it out on our own, but has given us leaders to show us the way. That is one reason that we celebrate this even as good news. 
It's hard for us as Americans to hear it. We, we resist the call to submission. But, Paul call, uh, but the author calls us to submit that we might learn to run well and on that day enter into the rest that He has prepared for us. And because we have leaders to lead us there, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness. And we thank You for Your grace. And we ask, Father, that You would now give us hearts to submit. That You would show us that these are the people You have gifted to Your church. And that we must follow them. Not that they can do what they want, but that they can lead us in the way You would have us to go. Father God, give us such humble submission, we pray, for Your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, Amen.